as time went on, you know, I've, I've become more and more comfortable with owning my own faith and, and letting him have his own religious beliefs and realizing that love can be bigger than that. Um, and you can build a marriage on more than a shared uh, religious foundation. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back with the last episode of 2020. Believe it or not, it's crazy uh, to think about that uh, we are already here at the end of potentially the worst year of all time, at least within our lifetimes, probably. Um, Not to say that we didn't have blessings along the way, but uh, this has been a weird one for sure. And uh, so... Probably most of us would say we're happy to see this one go and and excited to see what 2021 has in store. So uh, with that being said, uh, we have a first-time guest on, and um, it's Stina Kielsmeyer-Cook. She's a writer from Minneapolis. She's also the managing editor of Bearings Online, um, a publication of the Collegeville Institute, and her writing has appeared in Image Journal, CT Women, Sojourners, The Other Journal, and The Christian Century. Uh, so she came on to talk about her new book, uh, which is fantastic. Highly recommended. It's called Blessed Are the Nuns, Mixed Faith Marriage, and My Search for Spiritual Community. Uh, now, the, the reason I was so excited about this particular book that she wrote is that uh, we've gotten questions uh, that this book addresses a lot over the years, and there aren't a ton of resources out there for uh, this particular question. And that question is, what do you do and how do you handle, how do you navigate the tricky situation uh, that potentially could arise within the context of a marriage or a relationship where one or the other person is going through a spiritual deconstruction and the other one is not? And so how do you navigate that? How do you, uh, how do you balance that? And, and uh, what does that look like? And so uh, Stina went through this herself, uh, she and her husband, and so it's a lot of personal uh, information and a lot of uh, her own story. And it's very, very interesting. And I think it's super helpful, just very, very helpful. So uh, I was excited to, um, to release this one as the last one of the year. Um, and hopefully it is uh, helpful to a lot of you out there who have been asking that question. So uh, really fun chat with her. Uh, great book. Uh, you can get it anywhere books are, are sold. So it's definitely widely available. Uh, with that being said, uh, as always, uh, just like general housekeeping stuff, you know, we, uh, um, we have a great band on this week. And by band, I mean one, one person, uh, our good friend to the podcast, Clay, uh, provided some new music. Now, Clay hasn't come out with new music in a while. Uh, those of you who remember his former band, um, he was in a band called uh, The Undeserving. And uh, they broke up a while ago uh, when the whole record label fiasco occurred and, and record labels were just dumping bands right and left because they were losing money. Uh, unfortunately, Clay's band was a victim of that, but Clay still releases music um, as a solo artist and he's got some really cool stuff. Some of you were lucky enough to hear some of it. Those of you who were at our live show a couple of years ago in Denver got a taste of it, um, got to hear it live before any of it was actually recorded. So... So there's a handful of people out there who have heard this stuff, but it's fantastic. Um, a lot of it follows the theme of spiritual deconstruction and kind of 
self-critiquing the church from the inside. Um, really cool tune. So there's one that we'll have um, featured on this episode and then some of uh, his older music, if you're not familiar with him. Uh, but go out and support Clay. Uh, he is a starving artist. Not starving, but um, but support him if you can. Um, and, and hopefully we'll see the rest of that EP uh, coming out here in the beginning of 2021. So excited to hear that. But um, other than that, uh, if you w- like what we're doing, if you want to support us uh, from a financial perspective, um, consider com- becoming part of our Patreon family. We do have a cool Patreon. We've got one of our most popular, uh, you know, uh, things. What do you call them? I don't know. Incentive packages. Yeah, there you go. Um, is our book club where we send you a book every month. Uh, could be a guest that we've had on the podcast. Could be something that we're, you know, we're personally reading or something that we're really uh, interested in that we think that you might like as well. So new book every month, we ship it out to you. We've got a number of other uh, packages on there as well. Uh, you can find that through our website, www.thedeconstructionists.com. You can find that in our show notes as well. Uh, but links to the Patreon there, uh, links to our social media, our blog uh, is listed there under journal and a back catalog of all of our past episodes too. So if you want to go dig through that, you can, and you can hear our horrifying first episodes before we had a clue what we were doing. So, but be, be gentle. Maybe don't give us a, a review based off of our early episodes. Maybe, maybe wait till you get into the later ones here. But, uh, but anyway, uh, one of the biggest things you guys can do to help us get the word out, um, you know, trying to, trying to get the good word out about the podcast to new people who maybe, uh, it might be useful for them who maybe haven't heard of us before, um, uh, you know, just telling a friend. Word of mouth is is the biggest way that we've grown over the years, honestly. It's just by the, the kindness of people like you who are listening who have suggested it to a friend or suggested to somebody who they thought uh, could, you know, it might be useful for. Um, and also giving us five-star review on iTunes helps us get exposure as well. And that's just a, a way to support us. Um, you know, that's super, super easy. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, this year. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the guests that we had over the course of 2020. Uh, We've got a lot in store for 2021. Um, As always, don't freak out if no new episodes come out in January. It's our usual month off where we stockpile and spend a lot of the weeks recording new material uh, and and try to get that up up and running. And we'll be back in February with brand new stuff. And so we've got some really fun guests, some repeat guests, some brand new guests you've maybe uh, not heard of or might not be familiar with. Um, as always, we'll have a, a, a fun mixture uh, of different guests coming on uh, and, and stuff like that. So, um, so again, uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, it is not lost on us that uh, we are completely indebted to to those of you who who listen and support in whatever way that you can, um, and, and that just keep listening over the years. So, really appreciate it. Um, love all of you, and. Uh, um, All I can say is have a great uh, Christmas, great New Year, um, and stay safe and healthy, uh, and we'll get through this to 2021. So thanks, everybody. And uh, without further ado, I can't do the freaking in the middle. Sorry, Bob. Uh, But she has three names. What are you going to do? That's the the way it is. But anyway, uh, without further ado, for our last episode of 2020, here is Stina Kielsmeyer-Cook. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, this week we have on Stina Kielsmeyer Cook. Thank you so much for for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. 
Absolutely. So I, this is one of those situations where, um, you know, I, I have a relationship with, with, uh, uh, a contact at your, at your publisher and they happen to send over a copy of your book, uh, blessed are the nuns. And, uh, it happens to be a book that's specifically about a question that we get a lot. So I was very excited to have you on to talk about it. And it is that question of, uh, mixed faith marriage. And what do you do specifically when you have, you know, a partnership, you've got, you know, a couple who are in a marriage and one person perhaps is going through a spiritual deconstruction, maybe the other one isn't, or at the very least, they're in two different places. So uh, I was very excited to have you on to talk about this. I think this is uh, one of the only books I've ever seen that kind of covers the topic and, and you are an excellent writer on top of that. So it's a, a fantastic book that I cannot recommend enough. But Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Before we get into that, though, um, Talk a little bit about your background. Like, what kind of uh, sort of religious upbringing do you have, and, and, and what was that like? Yeah, well, thanks so much for saying all those nice things. Um, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, so my name is Dina. I'm a writer from Minneapolis. And let's see, so you're asking about the uh, faith background? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you have, were you raised okay. in a particularly religious household, or what was that like? Yeah, so I grew up Presbyterian, so I grew up in the mainline church. Um, and my mother experienced a call to um, ordained ministry when she was in her 30s. So when I was in elementary school, she went to seminary and pursued a call um, and became ordained in the Presbyterian church. So I grew up in that kind of mainline Protestant um, sort of world. And I also went to evangelical Bible camp every summer. So that was kind of where I, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of where I would have my, um, my kind of on fire for Jesus sort of experiences was every summer, um, going for a week or two to the Northwoods in Wisconsin and, um, you know, canoeing and backpacking and having kind of an on fire experience there. And so the camp was affiliated with Wheaton College in the Chicago area, which is famous for Billy Graham and very conservative um, kind of other social figures, um, but also was a place, just a great, I don't know, intellectual exploration, exposed me to different streams within the Christian tradition as well as the evangelical tradition. And so I went to evangelical college, and that's where I met my now husband, Josh. Um, he grew up in a Southern Baptist kind of setting as a missionary kid in South America. Um, and so when we were in college, we were kind of discovering things like liturgy for the first time, attending the local Anglican church. Um, and after we got married, we kind of hopped around a little bit to different denominations. We went to an Episcopalian church for a while, and then we were um, volunteers in an intentional Christian community that had a lot of Mennonite members. And so we were really attracted to the simplicity and emphasis on service. And so in our neighborhood in Minneapolis, there was a tiny little Mennonite church that was really focused on service, loving your neighbors, um, and that kind of thing. And so that's where we ended up going to church before my husband eventually deconverted and walked away from, from Christianity altogether. So, yeah, we've had kind of a mixture of different streams of Christianity that have influenced us. And then on my own, um, since my husband's deconversion, have been really interested in exploring the Catholic tradition and specifically Salesian spirituality, which is um, the spirituality that comes out of the visitation order of a monastic community. 
Oh, that's so interesting. And one of the things that I think is most fascinating about your particular spiritual journey is the fact that most people, when they're kind of church hopping or trying to find a new church home, kind of tend to stay within their their uh, their lane in terms of like, you know, I, I was born and raised Methodist. I'm going to try to find a local Methodist church. And that seems very, very kind of brave because a lot of those churches are very different just in terms of the way that they structure even their services. So what was it what was it in particular? Did you have certain criteria that you were looking for in a church and were just kind of like, we don't care what the background is so long as it meets these certain types of criteria? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I guess it kind of depends on which era or, um, <laughs> you know, I think there's different criteria at different times, but I think in college it was more like, oh, realizing that there's a historical tradition in which, you know, this certain form of Christianity that we were raised in comes out of. So being that more interested in, you know, things like liturgy and what prayers have been prayed for centuries and understanding ancient practices from the tradition that we come from. Um, and then I think also with like the Mennonite tradition and being really interested and attracted to people who are really tangibly living out their faith, like their lives look differently because um, of how they are following Jesus. So things like simplicity and nonviolence and that kind of thing. Um, and then in terms of the, the Catholic tradition, that was more, I, so I work for an organization that's an ecumenical center. So it naturally brings together people from different um, theological and denominational backgrounds. And so I was already getting exposed to a lot of new um, people in and through that just job, and it is based at uh, St. John's Abbey, which is a one of the largest Benedictine monastic communities in North America. And so that, too, was just a, a new thing for me to explore, just understanding, okay, all Christians have can trace back um, to one of their sources is this Benedictine monastic kind of rhythm that predates, you know, the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic and obviously the Protestant Reformation, all of these schisms, we can all go back to some of the early church practices and say, this is our common inheritance. This is something that we all share. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of different reasons <laughs> for <laughs> wanting to sample or understand, um, you know, faith in and through these different lenses. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. I, I, I remember a time when I was kind of exploring uh, Catholicism a little and and for the first time when I realized that there are a lot of different uh, branches of, of Catholicism, you know, the Benedictines, the Franciscans, and, you know, the Ignatians, and all these different uh, schools of thought that I did not know existed. I just thought, you know, Catholic is a Catholic is a Catholic. Right. Not true. Yes, no, there's an incredible <laughs> diversity. Yeah, an incredible diversity in, through the Catholic tradition as well, yes. Yeah, so, so one of the main themes, obviously, in the book is— you know, the, the thing that prompted the whole thing in, in general is the deconversion, you know, that you said that your husband went through, Josh. Um, was there, looking back, was there a moment that kind of sparked that for him, or was it just kind of a gradual process of asking questions and examining uh, the things that he had been raised to believe? Yeah, um, you know, I think it was more of a gradual thing for him. He, you know, I try not to go too much into his story in the book because it is his story. And, you know, when we were talking about, okay, could I write a, bi a book about our marriage? How would this look? I was really intentional about trying not to 
step in and speak for him and his experience um, because it is his story and it is his process. Um, and so that's why I tend to focus more on my own spiritual journey <clears throat> in how, you know, navigating my side of an interfaith marriage looks. But yeah, I think for him, he grew up in a missionary family and attended Christian schools his whole life. And so I think once we graduated from college and he went to graduate school, um, he's a scientist, so he was in a master's program. And just becoming friends with people who are outside of a very insular world, I think that that was a big part of his deconstruction process. And then as someone who was raised with more biblical literalism and, you know, this kind of emphasis on if you believe, you know, these black and white kind of ways of understanding scripture, then that's what it means to be a Christian. And I think when you get to a place where you're saying, well, I'm not so sure about this, or I don't know about this part of it, um, right belief was hammered down as being so much more of what it meant to be a Christian versus belonging to a specific community or being part of a certain or, or doing certain practices um, where, you know, other traditions might have an emphasis on another kind of piece of what it means to belong to a faith community. I think when the belief part wasn't there, um, you know, that made it so that he was like, I just can't, I can't pretend anymore that this is, that this is resonating or this is what I think is true about the world. So um, he might tell it differently. I don't know how to <laughs> ask him, but, um, but I think it was some combination of that. Yeah, and you you mentioned in the book too. You talk a little bit about the you know him recounting. Yeah, I, th- I believe it was a conversation that you were having in the kitchen where he talks about uh, the the moment where he stopped believing, being almost a came with an, almost a sense of relief because of all of the the fear uh, that his yeah. faith was kind of based in too. And that must have been an immense amount of pressure, especially uh, growing up as a as a kid in that kind of environment. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because you know I. I'm not, I think there's a combination of, you know, the certain environment that he was raised in, but also his personality and how he reacted and responded to the theology. Um, whereas, you know, other, other members of his family had a very different response to it. So yeah, it, it, I think for him though, it did, it was a very oppressive, um, feeling and a feeling of being afraid and feeling of always never measuring up and never being good enough. So when he talked about, you know, shedding that notion of, of a God that was always kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe out to get you or never thinking that you were enough. You know, when he kind of described those feelings or that orientation towards faith, I was like, yeah, I don't really believe in that God either. I think that my spirituality in the mainline church, you know, did talk about sin and about judgment, but it was much more focused on God's love and mercy and grace. Um, And so, I don't know, I'm not sure um, if it was a combination of, you know, that specific theology and his personality or, or what have you. But I think, you know, we all have to kind of look back at the stories that we were told and, you know, with, as, as grownups, as an adult and try to sort through, you know, what, what was it that I was being told about who God is and what parts did I latch onto and for what reasons? And I think it's, it's, it's really complicated, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think once you throw kids into the mix, uh, and and you're faced with the prospect of having to raise children, um, you know, you start to have those very serious conversations about how, how was it related to us as children and how do we want to convey those, those messages and those stories to our children? And it, it takes on a whole new complicated, you know, element, you know, to the situation. Definitely. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
one of the biggest things that I'm always interested in, because I, I went through a similar experience myself. While I was still married, I was kind of going through uh, my own kind of deconstruction. Now, I, I probably came out slightly differently than, than Josh did, uh, perhaps, but there was a moment where, you know, I was standing in the kitchen. I remember talking to my then wife and I said, you know, I, I don't know what I believe right now, but I was adamant that I was going to research it to death and figure it out, you know, which is absurd. But but that's that was my approach. But I, I just remember um, her reaction and kind of, and, and of course, there's a lot of it I didn't know at the time that she kind of conveyed to me later. But uh, speaking from the person who still had, uh, you know, this, this sense of faith, the sense of uh, belief, um, that must have been a large, a large amount of pressure on you. And, you know, you've got someone that you love dearly, the, the person who's uh, arguably the closest to you in the world who suddenly just says, I don't believe anymore. So how did that impact your life of faith? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that is so much of what the story is about. Um, I think for so long in our tradition, especially in the evangelical college we attended, um, I think I kind of absorbed, I don't know if it was secondhand or if they were overt messages, but where marriage was, you know, you could only have a successful marriage if it was based in a mutual faith in God. You know, that was just hammered down over and over. And so I think when Josh that he no longer believed, I suddenly was thought of those messages and thought, okay, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that we can no longer have a healthy marriage? And so I went looking at books, you know, for, cause there are some books out there about, you know, unequally yoked uh, <laughs> yes. couples, which I, you know, really dislike, dislike that term, but, um, you know, it's a biblical term. And so, you know, what does it mean if your partner is not a believer? And so there are resources and books out there, but I think I too was kind of in the middle of my own deconstruction. Um, I never got to the place where my husband did, where I said, you know, I'm done with this and I'm walking away. You know, I was holding on by my fingernails. And so I couldn't really find a resource or a book or story that kind of show that same kind of journey, I guess. Um, and so for me, yeah, it really forced me to examine what I believe because, you know, if my husband no longer believes, it would be a lot easier if we were both in the same place. You know, it would be a lot easier if we were both deciding, okay, we're just done with church. We're going to figure something else out together. But if I was going to choose to stay in the, in the faith, then how could I define that for myself? What would that look like? What does it mean to, to practice your faith on your own? Um, and how do you own that for yourself? And I think in a lot of ways, I had had this kind of unhealthy sort of codependent sort of understanding of faith. Like it, like it's not that we had like a headship theology or anything like that, but more like, you know, our spiritual lives depend on one another. Like it was much more of that kind of understanding. And I think my journey has been one of realizing that I think in any relationship, even if you do share a religious tradition, you're never going to be in completely the same place, (laughs) you know, or there might be times when you're not in step with one another about what you believe. And so I think that this notion that, well, if you just believe in the same things, then everything will be okay is actually really misleading. And we all have to do our own work of owning our spirituality and our spiritual practices. And so that's what it really forced me to do was to kind of examine what is it that I believe? And then how do I find the support and community that I need to nurture the faith that I do have while also loving and respecting and holding sacred the things that my husband holds to be true. So it's definitely been hard because there's not like a natural place for couples who are interfaith in a traditional, like 
church environment. And so finding places where we could belong together was definitely the hardest part of this whole thing. Tell me what you want. Because I don't know who to be. And I never thought we'd ever see battle Yeah, and I I, de- I I love that part of the book too because you guys come up with a very creative way I think to uh, to um, handle that that problem. Um, but before we get into that, I, I think what's an interesting, unique part of the story, and you kind of referenced this earlier, is that you worked in a place where you're literally surrounded by religious people while you're kind of going through um, trying to juggle like how to deal with your husband's deconversion and your own kind of spiritual journey slash deconstruction at the same time. And, and so you, there, a large part of this are these nuns that play this huge role in kind of almost like yeah. giving you spiritual guidance and stuff. And the, the funny thing to me throughout the book is, at least it seemed this way when I was reading it, <clears throat> the nuns seemed very unfazed <laughs> by all of this. They're just like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Totally. So, yeah, talk about the role of the nuns because they're, I mean, they, they sound amazing, by the way, in the book. Yeah, no, they are. They're incredible people. Um and they're people, you know, they're not like saints. And I think that that's important to acknowledge too. They're, they're mm-hmm. people who've committed to live their lives in a very unique way. Um, but they're, they're just as human as the rest of us and wonderful, wonderful friends and spiritual companions. But yeah, that, that definitely was my initial attraction, um, to getting to know monastic people, um, beyond having flirted with the whole new monasticism movement, you know, back in my post-college years. I was just really interested in the fact that they seemed to not be afraid of engaging with religious outsiders or people who were agnostic or atheist. It just, it didn't seem, they didn't seem to have the same urgency. And maybe it's because I, you know, was formed in evangelical institutions that really put that onus on, you know, it's your job to share the gospel with others and in that real sense of, oh, I've got to do this thing. If I am going to show love to my neighbor, I need to share this information with them so that they don't go to hell realizing that there was actually a very different way of showing and sharing love and sharing God's goodness um, that looked really differently and didn't kind of traffic in some of the same fear that I had had felt in some of these other religious institutions. Um, So, yeah, so that was the initial attraction was, you know, going to some religious events with Josh, feeling like, oh, man, who is he going to talk to? And realizing that some some of the nuns in the Benedictine community um, were some of the easiest people to talk to and totally unfazed um, by, you know, where he was at in his, you know, faith understanding or faith journey. And um, I think that there is something about the steadiness and stability of some of these practices and communities that have withstood time um, that... And maybe it's also that these are older women, for the most part, who have seen a lot in their lives, that it's kind of, there's just a a deep abiding trust that, yes, okay, you may be in this place, and who knows where you'll end up, but I can still trust in God's goodness, and my job is just to love you as you are, Um, which was a really healing um, attitude for me to kind of absorb and learn from. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And one of the other interesting things I think too is that I this is seems un, rather uncommon uh, these days with a lot of folks that we encounter who maybe 
maybe didn't start out in like more of the evangelical, non-denominational style Christianity, but maybe ended up there for, for a time and then sort of found their way back to, you know, what you might call like the high church or the traditional church um, and seeking some of that ancient wisdom uh, and, and finding a home there, which I, you would think would be the opposite direction, but it seems to be quite prevalent these days. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, maybe some of that ahistoricalness of being part of a non-denominational church or environment, or just, you know, we just read the Bible and do what it says, realizing, well, there's a lot of ways that you can read this, and why do we look at it this way, or why do we understand it in this context? And I think as those questions pop up, and the Bible is not an easy document to read, it's not an easy text to understand, um, what does it mean to live out, you know, what Jesus says in the Gospels? There's a lot of different ways communities have interpreted that over time. And so I do think there is a just desire for connection and understanding of, you know, even as our society has changed, um, there are some enduring truths that are here that community and tradition have interpreted. And um, maybe I don't have to completely uh, filter this through my own individual self or my own little church community, maybe there's some other resources and wisdom to draw on. And I think that that is comforting. I mean, we're living in a pandemic right now, and you read about some of the mystics and some of the, you know, the saints who were writing during times of great plague and um, who lived through horrible things. And you realize, you know, none of this is new. And um, there's something that feels really solid about that. Um, and you don't feel quite as detached, maybe, <laughs> from from a tradition and a God that has been constant through throughout all these ages. Yeah, and it seems like there's <laughs> there's uh, uh, no secret as to why certain figures and authors, uh, thinkers right now are so widely popular. Like, there's no reason in the world that a 75-year-old Franciscan monk who lives out in the middle of, you know, New Mexico should be so popular, but yet... You know, you, you listen, you know, I'm talking about (laughs) Papa Roar, um, but like so popular right now among such a young generation and, uh, or like, for example, Pope Francis, who's widely the most popular Pope, you know, arguably in, in a long time, um, you know, and, and it's these guys who are in this steeped in this very, very, uh, old tradition. And it's not like, you know, uh, somebody that's part of like a new movement. Right, right. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And I think that that was something as, you know, someone who was attracted to the new monasticism movement and still have friends who are part of that movement and respect, you know, what Protestants um, have, you know, the, the attraction and the pull, but realizing that there's a whole other tradition that has continued. Um, and, you know, I don't think hierarchy and patriarchy and some of these things that are baked into certain monastic structures are the healthiest of things, but there are certain wisdoms that you can find in things like the rule of St. Benedict that talk about, you know, how do you govern community life? You know, you don't have to completely start over from scratch um, every time you, a group of people who want to follow Jesus want to live more intentionally or want to follow follow the teachings of Jesus. Um, there's, there's a lot else that is already out there. Um, so I think that that was just really exciting. And I think, too, when you become disillusioned with the faith tradition that you grew up with um, for whatever reason. I think it is helpful sometimes to turn to a different strand within the same kind of general stream. Um, That's a mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Like turn to a different expression um, of, of the Christian faith 
that can maybe help you look at some of these fundamental truths in a new light or have a new, yeah, cast, cast a new light on them um, that can help you continue and, and persevere in times when it feels like, you know, why, why am I still here? Why am I still doing this? Does this, does this make sense um, anymore? And I think that those are real questions that a lot of, a lot of my peers, um, a lot of my peers from my, my college too, um, in the years since we all graduated have been grappling with. And it's been interesting just to see different, you know, the different trajectories people take. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's funny. I, I would even argue, I'm like, one of the things that I've started doing is reading Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. I'm like, why wouldn't you? It's, they wrote it, <laughs> you know, like, you know, so, yeah. it, but it's just, it's, it's uh, refreshing just to get a different perspective and, and see things maybe in the verses that I've read a million times that I never saw before reading, you know, um, rabbinical, you know, literature. Um, so yeah, totally agree. But um, one of the things in the book, that I really liked because I, I think there's a lot of power in, in naming something. And you came up with this term uh, that you call spiritual singleness, and it really put a name to something that I had experienced. So talk about what you mean by that. Yeah. So it's funny because it's kind of this mystical experience in the book early on where I'm trying to having a monologue or talking to God. I'm not really sure if God's there. And I just have this phrase sort of deposited in my brain. I'm not sure if it's from the Holy Spirit or if it's just my subconscious coming up with something, remixing something from down below and popping it into my brain. But yeah, it just was naming something that I think even though I was, you know, in a marriage that was a good one where we supported each other, loved one another very much, parenting two little kids, realizing that that I felt alone, that I felt alone in trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus when I can't share that with my partner. Um, and I think a lot of churches are just set up for a nuclear family. Um, you know, the programming is kind of geared that way. You know, when you kind of try to navigate that awkward fellowship hour <laughs> service, um, it's just, it can feel uncomfortable, you know, trying to be in that space if you are the only person in your marriage, the only partner there with your two little kids. And so I just was feeling very you know, very alone in that way. I think also too, because I was in a new church, so I didn't have a whole lot of uh, pre-existing relationships to kind of fall back on. Um, so yeah, so I, I hear this term and I think, huh, I wonder if this is part of my attraction to monastic communities as well, because these are people who take a vow of celibacy. You know, they're intentionally choosing a lifestyle that doesn't include, you know, a marriage partner or kids. And even though that isn't my life, um, maybe there was some kind of special kinship that I had to uh, nuns or to female saints, most of whom were not married, who were living their lives um, for God without without a partner. So that was kind of the initial draw and attraction to the term. And it doesn't really pan out the way I think it is, um, but it does take me um, to the monastery. It, it prompts me to keep going back to join this spiritual formation group that meets at the monastic community um, over the course of a year to learn a little bit more about the order, Salesian spirituality, and the two saints that founded the order. So, yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your interest in that term or what you thought of when you you read about it. Yeah, I think the thing, the first thing that comes to mind is it, you know, the the singleness part of it is just the, 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 
the solitude uh, of being the one person who is kind of carrying the load. And, and like I directly connected it uh, to, to being the one there with kids or a child at, at least and having to kind of carry that on your own. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought that was so interesting. And, and uh, I can only imagine like trying to start over in a new church community and, and having to bear the weight of that while still like connecting with a new community and, and meeting new people and for, forging new relationships. Yeah, I think there is a particular kind of loneliness. And I think, you know, single people in the church have been saying this, divorced people, you know, people who come outside of any kind of traditional nuclear family have been saying this for for a long time, that churches can often be really lonely places. And um, one of the the sisters that I get to know in the story, um, she had been a Baptist missionary in Asia for like 30 years before she became a Catholic nun. She's got a really interesting story, but she told me about, you know, going to the Baptist churches in her home state of Texas and being put in groups called spares and pairs where she was like essentially compared. (laughs) Yeah. Essentially compared to like a spare part, you know? (laughs) And I think there really is is that feeling of like, well, I don't quite fit here. Like (laughs) this isn't really made for me where you realize when you look at, you know, you look at Paul, you look at some of the, the gospel writings about singleness, and you realize, actually, the nuclear family isn't really all that biblical in the way that it's, you know, written in, in the stories that are in the Bible. Um, and so, you know, why do, why do our places of worship feel so alienating for people who are not there um, with with a partner who shares the same faith as them or who are single? So, yeah, it, there can be a particular kind of loneliness in that in trying to find community. Yeah, I feel like somebody missed an opportunity there to create a T-shirt that like third wheel for the Lord or something like that, you know. <laughs> but definitely, yeah. And I, I think I think probably I, I, I partially connected with that term also because I can identify from the divorce angle of you know like attending your child's like uh, school functions as a single parent, mm. you know, and and mm-hmm. like all the other couples, uh, you know, both parents are there, and you're just kind of like, okay, you know, I'm here by myself, um, right. But yeah, it, you're right. We we churches by and large are not equipped to really handle those things uh, in a, in a healthy, helpful way. I should say, um, right? Or it's more like we need to fix this for you. We need to yeah, it's a either problem. you know find yeah. somebody. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem <laughs> that needs to be fixed. And that was that was also the case with a lot of the unequally yoked books that I read, where. Ugh. It really was like let's let's try to pray our partner back to faith, and there's nothing wrong with praying for your partner. Like I'm all for that, but I think it does kind of give you this attitude of, okay, well, this is wrong; it needs to be right. Like there, you know, this is this is inherently bad that you are in an interfaith relationship, and this is how it fixes it could get fixed. And of course, I think there's a lot of things that are easier about sharing a religious tradition with your partner. And I don't want to minimize the challenge and the the struggle that can be there when you are not in the same place spiritually. But I don't think it's helpful (laughs) to have that kind of lens um, where it's like, okay, let's, it's on you now to be a missionary in your own home, you know, and to fix this problem. Cause that's, that's not respectful. I don't think. Yeah, keep, yeah, keep keep going with that line of, line of thought because I think I think it's I think there's got to be a lot of pressure on somebody like your husband who is probably surrounded by people who are believers, and so there's a lot of pressure to kind of conform to that, um, and and probably a lot of pressure around him. Just you know, even in thinking, I'm sure he thought about it long before he uttered the words. 
Um, and you even, you even talk about a story at the very, very beginning of the book where he's, uh, having a, um, uh, heated conversation, we'll say with his dad. And, and so there's, there's pressure coming from a lot of different angles, I guess is what I'm getting at. So, so talk a little bit about that and then talk about like, you know, how supportive was your community in terms of his kind of transition to this, um, non-belief or whatever you want to call it? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's hard. I mean, when you come from a really religious family and community, if you're the one who's suddenly making a break, you know, that's, that's just hard on everyone. Um, and so I have empathy for everyone. And, and especially though, for my husband, I'm, you know, I'm his wife, I'm, I'm here to look out for him and his well being. And so I just saw how much he struggled, um, in doing this thing that he felt was, you know, the truest thing that he could be doing in terms of being honest about this is what I, this is where I'm at. This is what I believe. This is no longer working for me. Um, and I think it took a lot of bravery and courage. I think there's a lot of people who are not always honest with themselves about where they're at, um, with their faith. And it, it was a risk, you know? And so I think the fact that he, you know, trusted me enough to be honest and trusted his family enough to be honest was something that I really respect and, you know, honor in his journey. And yes, it's been hard for his, his family. I think it's been hard for me, but I think when I sit back and look at, you know, the integrity that he displayed and being truthful, um, and, and recognizing, you know, that this wasn't, this wasn't something that was, um, a force for good in his life, then it helps me to, to respect it and to honor that that's, that's, you know, his experience. And I, you can't, you can't negotiate someone else's experience, even if it's different than yours. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, but even, even as I say that, like, there's still grief, right. There's still times where you're like, Oh, well this, this is what I expected this to be. And so I think also making space for, you know, my own emotions around this of being like, yeah, I didn't think that this is what my marriage was going to be like. And that's hard. And those feelings and emotions are also valid. So, I mean, counseling has been really good for us. And, um, you know, time has been really good for us. You know, this is now, I think it's like six or seven years ago now that he had this experience. I don't think I could have written a book like this in those first years because it took a while, you know, to kind of shake out, well, what is this going to mean for us? And how are we going to, how are we going to do this? And I think too, um, for our faith community at the time, it was kind of more of a, you know, not something you just like go and broadcast, right? <laughs> like I'm going to yeah. go stand up in front of the service and be like, by the way, Josh is not a Christian anymore. You know? So <laughs> I kind of open up the the book, with, you know, talking about some of those conversations that you have when people are asking, so where is your spouse today? You know, like, right. you know, right. especially in those first months and it's, it is, it's awkward. You're like, I, I, he's just, he's, he's at home. You know, you make excuses. And then at some point it's like, yeah, he just isn't, he isn't feeling it anymore. This isn't really where he wants to be. And, um, you know, everyone in our Mennonite church and in the American Baptist church have been wonderful. Like I had never gotten, you know, a hurtful or negative comment or anything like that, but it's more just people don't really know what to do with that information. Right. Um, and so that's the part that's hard is that it just doesn't quite feel comfortable because <laughs> you're not fitting the narrative, you know, that, um, is kind of assumed. I used to think that love was tragic. 
That's when you came running through my door It wasn't fate, it wasn't magic Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember you talk about in the book um, kind of that formulaic um, idea of what, what, how life is supposed to go. You know, you're supposed to find a Christian yeah. spouse, you know, you're supposed to not have sex before marriage. You're supposed to, you know, do all these things, go to Bible study and all this stuff. And it, yeah, you're right. It doesn't, doesn't quite fit that narrative, does it? No. And I think most people will tell you that it doesn't fit that narrative. And so that, you know, we are all kind of dealing with the disillusionment, I think of midlife or like things kind of turning out differently than maybe we had thought. And so, I think too, like the, the story, I don't know. I'm hoping that it can relate to people, um, in any kind of stage of trying to figure out, well, now what do I do? <laughs> like, this is what I thought. Now what, now what does my life look like or how do I live faithfully? Yeah. So, so talk a little, do you recall your, your, um, your reaction when he first kind of had that conversation with you? Cause I, I can recall, um, having that conversation with my, my ex-wife. And I remember she said, she said for months after that, she would secretly pray for me that I would, I would kind of, you know, do an about face. And then eventually throughout the process, um, you know, this podcast was, was birthed out of conversations with, with my, one of my dear friends who happened to be, uh, my pastor at the time, ironically. And, uh, for for me, it became a situation where, for the first time in my life, I took ownership over what I actually believed and actually sat down and say, "All right, what what do I believe and why do I believe these things?" And I'd never done any of the work myself, you know. So I'm like, this I wouldn't I wouldn't treat anything else in my life that's this important in this way. Like I, I do more research on you know the card that I'm going to buy. As Rora says, I think in, in one of his books or somebody, I'm getting mixed up, but, um, <clears throat> but like, you know what I mean? It's like you do more research on, on other things than you do oftentimes on your belief system. You just kind of, as, as my buddy Adam used to say, belief by proxy, you just kind of, you know, take it for granted that people are just giving you the answers and without questioning mm-hmm. them. And so like, do you, do you remember your reaction? Like when he first said that and kind of what, what your response was? Yeah, well, so, you know, I think I had said that, you know, we were both kind of in a place of, like, not being totally sure where we were at. Um, And so I thought, you know, he was exploring some other faith traditions and reading different books on, you know, Sufism. I don't know, he was was reading widely. Um, And I just was like, okay, we're still going to the church, but I'm, you know, I've got questions, too, that I don't know how to answer. But then I think it was when he, you know, told his dad that he wasn't a Christian anymore, and, you know, hearing his dad's response and being like, well, you know, you know, having a response to that of, well, we, we need, you know, what does that mean? I think that that made it suddenly the public, you know, whereas yeah. before it was like a, a conversation, you know, or like we're talking about our doubts and yet we're still, you know, participating in the life of a faith community. And so, yeah, when, when he said, said that, I just was, I don't know. I think I had to deal with it for the first time because it wasn't just a conversation between us. It was other people were, um, you know, were hearing about it and, you know, he's like, I don't want to go to church anymore and I don't want, you know, to, um, dedicate our second born. And, you know, some of the things, the practices that we had been doing with our first child. So that felt like the big kind of line in the sand. And at that point, yeah, I mean, 
I, it's hard to remember, but I, I wrote a lot. I mean, that's a lot of how I process things. Um, of just like, okay, well, well now what? And feeling grief, feeling disconnection, feeling lost, um, mourning, you know, what I had imagined life to be. I'm a big idealist. Um, and so, you know, just trying to sort through, okay, now, now what? Um, and it took a while, you know, we were kind of hanging in there when we had little kids too. So it's already just a stressful time, you know, to be, uh, navigating any marriage, I think, is when you've got little little babies around and you're sleep deprived. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, you know, I yeah, for whatever reason, I just felt the strong compulsion just to keep going to church. Like I wasn't doing a whole lot of like scripture reading or any other kind of spiritual practices, but I just really relied on my little congregation. And it, you know, it wasn't that like. Sermons were necessarily knocking it out of the park or anything, but it was just the quiet, faithful witness of the people who would show up every week. And the, it was just really a community that was supportive and loving and kind. And so, yeah, I guess I can't really remember more than, than just that it was a, a time when I felt a lot of grief and we struggled. Um, but it, you know, we hung in there and I don't know, just maybe it's that stubborn persistence and gradually, as time went on, you know, I've, I've become more and more comfortable with owning my own faith and, and letting him have his own religious beliefs and realizing that love can be bigger than that. Um, and you can build a marriage on more than a shared uh, religious foundation. Yeah, that's, that's a huge revelation. And, and, but, uh, b- before we move on, because I have another question about that, actually, but um, talk a little bit about, because I think the children aspect of it is, is such a huge um, thing to navigate or, or uh, to try to figure out, especially when, because, you know, there's plenty of, I think there's, there's a lot of literature probably out there in terms of like, you know, if I'm Christian and I marry a Jew, like, how do you, do you raise your kids Jewish or do you raise them Christian? Like there's stuff like that, but like, there's probably not a lot out there that talks about what do you do if one of you is a believer and one of you is not. So like, was that a, a conscious conversation that you and your husband sat down and said, well, I'd like to still kind of raise our kids. Cause you, you do talk about like Advent, I think is kind of uh, one of the instances mm-hmm. where you kind of brought forth some traditions um, and the kids were kind of like, Oh, okay. You know, so talk talk about that. What, what what was that process? What did that look like? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of uh, an ongoing conversation. I wouldn't say that we've like definitively decided, you know, this is how it's going to be. Um, but yeah, early on, I was, you know, I was like, I I want to take our kids to church. I want them to know what it means to be part of a faith community. And of course, they're gonna ha- they're gonna know that their dad isn't there, and they're gonna know that their dad doesn't believe the same things but I want to at least give them the opportunity to experience the same tradition um, and to be part of that community and to learn, learn about the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And so um, Josh has been supportive of that, which has really been helpful. I think it would have been a lot harder if he was, you know, uh, felt more strongly about them not attending services or something like that. But, you know, there have been times where we, you know, do we, what about vacation Bible school? You know, like, is that okay? Or what about, you know, camp? Like I said earlier on, like I had a lot of my spiritual formation at some of these more traditional evangelical Bible camps kind of experiences. And, you know, I think he feels more uncomfortable with that. So 
our kids are still young enough that we haven't really gotten to that age, at least for like sleepaway camp. So we haven't, you know, had to cross that bridge, I guess. But it's kind of on a case-by-case basis. So things like vacation Bible school, you know, I'll talk to the children's pastor and say, okay, so tell me, you know, tell me what's, what's <laughs> going on here this week. Uh, what are we talking about? And it's like, okay, we're talking about the fruits of the Spirit. You know, we're going to memorize some verses about that. And it's games and, you know, verses yeah. we're going to talk about kneeling our sins to a cross and, you know, burning our sins in paper like I did as a kid. You know, right. that there's different gradients, I guess, of Christian education. And so... Um, so it's been important to both of us that we kind of feel out what is it that our kids are learning and then, you know, what do we feel comfortable with uh, together? So we've been able to kind of navigate that on a case by case basis, but I I don't have any worry that our kids are not going to know that there's alternatives, right, (laughs) to Christianity because that's, that's the reality of our home. And so I, I hope that how we're able to love and respect one another and respect each other's different uh, faiths or lack thereof, that hopefully that communicates in, uh, you know, a healthy, a healthy environment and one that hopefully reflects the good parts about what it means to be a Christian, too, on my end. Um, because there's also fear. If I'm, you know, being honest, there's times when I'm wondering, you know, are they getting the right foundation? Are they understanding, you know, the faith in the way that I did growing up? in a family that had, you know, a mom and a dad that were both part of the same tradition, it is going to be different for them. But I think that that is the big movement that I'm hoping um, the book communicates and that I have journeyed is moving from a place of fear to a place of trust and a place of, you know, really resting in God's goodness and being, you know, being content to stay in that place versus grasping and trying to control and trying to, you know, navigate things in a way that would be hurtful to to my agnostic husband because ultimately I don't think that that's going to be a message or example that the kids would see as being exactly Christ-like or loving. So we'll see. I'm not sure how it's all going to go. We'll see when they get to be bigger, you know, what they what their experiences of being in an interfaith family look like. But you're right, there really aren't a lot of good resources out there. And so, um, you know, I think that that's something that I'm you know, I think about writing in the future. It's like, well, what would an interface family advent guide look like that would be yeah. more open and inclusive to someone who's agnostic? Like, are there different traditions or ways of marking these seasons that can, you know, give a nod to someone who maybe isn't comfortable or isn't part of that religious tradition? So I think there's a lot of space to create um, new ways of doing some of the same church calendar things that, you know, I find life-giving. Yeah, and one of the things I think that that you share in common, there was a there was a couple uh, who Adam and I met um, some years ago at a live event that we did out in Denver, Colorado, and the husband I think had had kind of started down this path of uh, deconstruction or spiritual journey first, and the the wife was there, and um, and somebody there was a, another younger couple there that asked them, well, what was the key to to getting through this, and and I just remember her saying. Like she just supported him, you know, she didn't get it necessarily. She wasn't in the yeah. same place, but she supported him and said, Hey, if you want to go to this Rob Bell event, go, you just go. And then, and then she started to go with him. And I, I think, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I see with your story is that, um, you know, it, you didn't, you didn't necessarily shame Josh for believing what he believed. 
Um, but there was this mutual support that seems to exist on both ends, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that that's really fundamental is, you know, really having that deep respect for the other person's um, autonomy, you know? Like, I think sometimes we build up marriage as being this be-all, end-all, and I think, um, you know, we we need solid friendships outside of our marriage. We need faith communities. We need all different kinds of communities to support us, and we can't get all of our needs met in any one person. And so I think if that is really the way you view marriage is that, okay, this is my soulmate person who's going to meet all my needs, and suddenly we don't believe the same things, then, yeah, it does feel like everything falls apart because you're not getting that need met somewhere else. And I think um, I think it's healthier, though, to recognize that, you know, in any kind of yeah. relationship, yeah. there's going to be times when you're, you're in it, you're, you're feeling that connection, there's times when you're not, and, of course, there has to be enough connection outside of, you know, for it to be a healthy relationship, just period, other things that you share if you don't share a faith. But, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, we don't have to be as afraid, I guess, of it shaking the relationship apart um, if suddenly our partner has some different, you know, takes a different journey than, than maybe we've been on. But I think, you know, there's always there's also lines that can get crossed. You know, I've talked to other couples where, you know, sometimes those divisions get to be uh, to a point where there's no coming back. You know, sometimes things change too much or too fast and there isn't that mutual respect or there's, you know, they're just, I, I, I want to acknowledge and name that sometimes it doesn't work out. And I think that that's also part of what can be hard and scary about this journey, right. Of navigating faith difference in marriage. So it really I think depends a lot on that particular couple and, and how they're communicating and how, um, yeah, how they're journeying together through it because we needed a lot of counseling, you know, we needed a lot of help, um, to be able to, to do this. And, and it isn't easy sometimes, you know? Um, so I just, I don't want to paint it with a, like a rosy, like this is just the best because it, it's hard. It's hard. Um, when you're suddenly up against, you know, how are we doing Sunday mornings or how are we going to have this hard conversation about vacation Bible school or how do we understand like what we value together? Um, so I think it really does help when you can find, other couples or identify with other stories, um, which is why I wrote the book, um, because it gives you a sense of, okay, there are ways that this can be done and it can be a really beautiful thing. Yeah. One of, one of the important things I think it, you, you just mentioned, um, is this idea that it's, um, it's kind of like a grieving process. You're grieving the death of, of this, uh, life that you thought that you were going to live or like this version of your life that you thought you were going to live. And so, like, w- one of the things I thought was really interesting and useful um, is where you talk about this this um, this idea of uh, the power of relinquishment and and how that mm. w- was very helpful. And so, uh, and, and of course, it reminds me because I think you even quote Roar in there where he talks about uh, this idea of the uh, death and rebirth. Um, and in this case, you know, the right. death of the life you envisioned in a sense. So, talk about how powerful and and healing relinquishment can be. Yeah. I mean, you named it. It's, it's, it's scary and it's hard to let go of what we had dreamed or what we thought God was telling us, you know, was going to happen. I think that there's also that element to it. Um, you know, we really, 
when we got married, you know, all of our guests were like, we, we saw the Holy Spirit doves and the clouds above your outdoor wedding ceremony. You know, it felt like we had all this outside confirmation. And so it's like, well, then what is my relationship to God now? Like, I feel like I had this idea or vision that I thought was from God. Now, now it's different or now it's not the way I thought it was. What, you know, how do I then process that disillusionment, right, with God, with my partner? Um, and I think that that is part of just getting older and being in more of like midlife is just there's, you have to let go of some of these, these ideas or ways of being that you thought life were going to be, because if you keep holding on to them, they just distort, right? Because they're no longer, they're no longer true, right? They're no longer the reality that you're in. And if you don't let go of them, there's no space for something new to come and be born, um, and I, I saw that a lot in the sisters as well. You know, a lot of their monastic communities are contracting. If you look at how many sisters were joining monastic communities in the 1950s and 60s, pre-Vatican II versus today, it's, you know, an enormous contraction. And so a whole way of life is really dying out in certain areas. And I just see this phenomenal trust and faithfulness and continuing the, the lifestyle, the monastic lifestyle, continuing in acts of service, continuing to trust in God's goodness, that, yeah, maybe maybe the form of the church that existed at one time is no longer going to be the way it is now. It doesn't mean that God isn't still good. It doesn't mean God still isn't working. Um, but it takes a lot of trust, right, <laughs> to be able to let go of things that are no longer but are no longer alive in the way that they maybe once were. And and realizing that maybe that is just the way of things, right? Maybe, um, I think Parker Palmer talks about disillusionment, you know, like God being the great iconoclast, you know, smashing idols left and right, um, taking down these ideas of what we as humans kind of build up as being what should be um, versus what it is in reality. And it's it's painful. <laughs> it's a painful thing, Um but in my own story, I don't think I would be able to be in a place of trust and a place where I can affirm God's goodness if I wasn't able to let go of that vision. Because otherwise, I'd just be living the story of just reacting to what Josh's decision was seven years ago versus being part of rebuilding and coming up with a new way for our family to function in the world, which I think is much more about redemption and about serving and loving our neighbor. Um so, yeah, I I think that learning to trust the dying, as Richard Rohr says, is something that we'll probably have to keep doing in life, and it's not easy. Yeah. Oh, man. So a couple ideas I want to end on it, that I thought were really cool. Um, and so talk about them. And So maybe start with the nuns and nuns and N-U-N-S and N-O-N-E-S, the nuns and nuns first, yeah. and then maybe talk about this thing that you started, uh, your interfaith supper club after, uh, after that. Yeah. Um, well, nuns and nuns is a great community. Um, that's actually nationwide. So depending on where you live, there's probably a nuns and nuns chapter in your community. You can go to nunsandnuns.org and kind of look up where they exist, but they are these just basically small groups, intergenerational small groups between mostly millennials and monastic sisters in most cases. Um, and they kind of were born after the 2016 election, actually, um, where a lot of young spiritually disaffiliated people who were interested in 
activism, in resistance, in kind of figuring out a way to engage with the political system, um, we're looking to Catholic sisters who often are on the front lines of a lot of social movements. When you look at different protest movements that are out there and wondering, is there, you know, how have you been able to sustain this rhythm of engaging the world when, you know, 10 times out of 10, it seems like justice is not being served or the greater arc towards moral goodness is just lying flat. And how do you continue to, um, yeah, resource that kind of work? And so they started having conversations. This was kind of, I think this was at Harvard University that the first group started to meet and talk. And they realized that there was just all these great um, kind of synergies that would come in and through their conversation. One of the taglines is, surprise, we're soulmates. Like, we find <laughs> that there's... There's something that that this younger generation of activists and this older generation of contemplatives um, in in the, like a true mutuality. And so I learned about this movement um, while I was writing the book and thought, oh my gosh, this is this has been my experience. Not I don't I'm not an activist per se, but I am someone who has really been attracted to both the contemplative and the prophetic nature of monastic communities. And so I thought. It would be great to have something like this in my area. So in and through my relationship with the Visitation Sisters in my neighborhood, we started a group of nuns and nuns. So we meet, we still meet uh, once a month. We're meeting over Zoom now. Um, but we get together and we talk about different spiritual practices. And we have a mix of people who are religiously affiliated or non-affiliated, but it's a space where, you know, there's no kind of assumption that you have to believe any one thing in order to be in conversation. Um, so everyone there is a seeker to some degree, although the Catholic sisters are obviously professed religious uh, members of communities, but they also share in having questions and doubts. And so it's just been a really wonderful place, I think, for me, even though it's not a place that Josh and I share together. Um, it's been a good place for me just to have conversations about my own faith and owning my own path. Um, so yeah, check out Nuns and Nuns. They're, they're awesome. Um, and then you asked about Interface Supper Club. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Interface Supper Club kind of came out of this desire for finding a community where we could both belong. So I talked about how awkward it's been, um, at least initially, in a new church kind of coming in when you are the only person in your marriage attending with, like, single-parent feeling um, with little kids, trying to meet people and make connections. And... What I realized was pretty soon after attending this American Baptist church was that there was another couple that we knew of, I didn't know of well, um, but who also was in an agnostic Christian marriage. And so um, we, as actually Josh's idea, like, well, why don't we hang out with them? Like, they're in the same situation. Like, (laughs) why don't we get together? Yeah. And at that time, it was the same time that our church was really pushing like small group ministries and stuff. And so they were putting a call out, like, if you have an idea for a small group, bring it forward. And so <laughs> I probably not the, quite what they meant. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think they were expecting it, but to their credit, they've been so, they've been so wonderful about it. So, um, yeah. So we, got together and we said, well, what if we just put a call out and see if there's any other couples? Cause it's not like we really knew. Um, and it turned out there was like three other couples who were like, yes, we are navigating this dynamic in our marriage and we want to talk about it. So we started meeting, I guess it was like a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, um, once a month and we get together and we share a meal and 
we've, we've gone through different things together. Like, uh, we did something called the interfaith family journal together, but usually we just kind of get together and just talk. And, uh, a lot of times we'll talk about rituals in our interfaith homes or things like how do we talk to our kids about X, Y, Z. Um, and it's just been a really generative place for us. Um, a place where, yeah, we feel totally at home because we're represented in the demographic. Um, and actually it's been really cool after, uh, publishing the book, my church has asked me to, um, you know, I, I spoke at our first or the first outdoor, outdoor service that I attended um, this last month. They asked me to come and talk about the book and they're going to do like a little outdoor book discussion featuring the different um, interface families that are in our small group um, and trying to bring those stories kind of to the forefront of church conversation. Um, so that's been really, really awesome just to feel that welcome and that inclusion because doesn't always happen that these stories kind of come to the center. They're usually more on the fringes. So that's been really wonderful. Yeah. And how cool too, because I think the first thing that people feel the loss of is the loss of, of that church community. Cause oftentimes like, you know, I, I, I even remember the last church I attended regu- regularly. Um, you know, the, the first thing that I started to miss uh, was just my interaction with, you know, the people that I had become friends with every single Sunday or, you know, uh, the, the off yeah. weekdays, you know, things, but, um, yeah, so start your own. That's, that's fantastic. I love that. Um, and that made me think of one last question I had to ask you just cause I, I forgot and I thought this was really neat in the book. Um, you picked up this really cool prayer practice, I believe, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but examine, is that right? Yeah, no, that's right. So yeah, talk about that and and how it extended for you into something that's become a really useful practice in your marriage, even aside from like the religious aspect to it and kind of how you used it within your marriage. Yeah. So this is an Ignatian spiritual exercise and St. Ignatius um, has this like really intense, like spiritual exercises program that you can do. That's, I think it's a whole month long. Um, so you can, you can do the hard route with St. Ignatius, or he mm-hmm. says that the most important prayer, if you forego, forego all the other prayers, is to do the examine prayer. So kind of the shortcut um, prayer. But it's, it's a way to kind of take stock. Either um, you can do it several times during a day. You can do it once a day. You can do it once a month. You know, it can be at any point in any kind of increment of time. But it's a point of just reflection of where did I see God today? And God can be, where did I see love? Where did I see wholeness? Where did I see beauty? Where did I see health and thriving and flourishing? You know, where did I see that in my day or week or month or whatever it is? And identifying that. So taking some time to identify that. And then asking, you know, the flip side of that, where did I see, where did I not see God today? Where did I experience hate, fear, death, um, destruction. And you look back over your day and kind of identify that moment. And for Josh and I, you know, we don't do this super regularly, but it has been a practice that I feel like is friendly towards, you know, Christians, non-Christians, anyone can do it. It, You don't have to necessarily pray. Like there is like an opening part of the prayer where you invite the Holy Spirit to come. and, And then at the end part of the prayer, you can, you know, offer up the things that were, you know, the negative things of the day and ask for more of the positive things. You don't necessarily have to do that prayer part, but you can still do the naming of, you know, the good and the naming of the bad. 
And it's a way to kind of, yeah, get a sense for, well, where, where did I see movement in my life that I want more of? And where did I see things that I don't want more anymore of? And so for us, it's a way for us to sit up, just check in with each other. So I'm actually hearing if something significant did happen in, in Josh's day that I, like, there's a time for us to actually talk about it after putting the kids to bed and washing the dishes and what have you. Um, but it's also can over time, if you're noticing, oh, every day, the best part of my day is my walk outside or every day, the worst part of my day is this email that I have to write or, you know, whatever it might be, then you can start to identify certain trends and think, oh, maybe this is also a way of discerning. Um, Because I think what God wants for us is more love and flourishing and beauty and truth and less of the negative things in life. And so it can also be a way to say, oh, maybe I need to let go of this thing that is just hurting me. Or maybe this is something that I need to invest more in because this is the best part of my day. I need to go on more walks. I need to read more poetry. I need to have more conversations with my neighbor, whatever it might be that causes flourishing. Um, and so, yeah, Josh and I have found that that's been really just good for us as a spiritual practice that feels you know, good to both of us. And it's also something we can do with our kids. And, you know, you can call it a high, you're high and you're low for the day. You know, it doesn't have to be fancy. Or um, sometimes we call it your rose, your thorn, and your bud, your bud being the thing that you're looking forward to um, happening in the day ahead. Um, And it's just, yeah, it's just been a really sweet little practice that helps us all kind of stay connected to each other. Well, I love that. And I think that is the perfect spot to end. So, <laughs> so great. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, I, like I said, I can't recommend the book enough. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's finally time that there's something out there that, that addresses this subject and, and what a beautifully written book. So blessed are the nuns, mixed faith, marriage, and my spiritual, my, or my search rather for spiritual community by Stina Kielsmeyer Cook. Um, fantastic book. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate this. It was a really fun conversation. Well, it was really great to be here. Thanks so much for your thoughtful questions. Where the company line.
Love. 